Well, uh, thanks again for coming. Thanks for being with us today. Um, if you're new, I want to say thanks uh, for coming. Uh, if you don't regularly worship here, um, again, thank you for being the church and bringing it here. Uh, we're so glad that uh, you've chosen to, uh, to, to worship with us. Um, we've been going through the book of Philippians, a um, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and just talking about what he's got to say to us. And he's been talking a lot about joy and talking a lot about uh, community in, in weeks past. And uh, last week, we saw that Paul's call for us was that we would do this Christian life uh, in community, and that uh, in so doing, uh, his call uh, to work out our salvation in particular is not a command given to a bunch of individuals, but it was a command given to individuals who are part of a church, given to a church that we might work out our salvation together. In fact, uh, most of the commands in the book of Philippians, the commands about joy and the commands to, um, that, that we read as individual promises and commands to us are really communal things that he's calling the church to do together. As Paul found uh, joy in the midst of a, a prison cell that he's writing in, um, I, I don't think it's any stretch to say that a great part of the reason why he could find so much joy is because of the companions and the partners in life with whom he was running the race. Uh, someone once said that uh, we are, um, we're all like elevators. Okay? We're all like elevators. We'll either take people up or bring people down. You heard that before? We're all like elevators. We'll either take people up or bring people down. And the question that we ask ourselves this morning is, do we bring people up or do we bring people down? See, Paul says the way that we bring people up is by living the kind of life that he's been encouraging us for the, through the first two chapters of uh, the letter to the Philippians, by considering others better than ourselves, by doing things in humility. And as we do that, by going underneath other people, we can lift them up to higher levels. So the question is, do you do that in, all, in your life, or do we bring people down? Yeah, there are a lot of us who, um, you know, maybe you, you uh, have conversations with people, and they leave that conversation feeling like, man, I was so blessed. I was so encouraged. I'm so uplifted. I'm so ready to run the race with even greater enthusiasm, encouragement, joy because of this time that I just spent with them. Is that the kind of person you are or is it more the kind of person where uh, you're constantly disparaging people, discouraging them, cutting them down and, and then you say, oh, I was just kidding. And why can't you take a joke? Don't be such a, uh, don't have a cow, man. I'm just playing around. It's just a joke while the damage has already been done. Paul says, we will do one of two kinds of things to people. We'll either bring people up or we'll lead people down. And I know the temptation in this time is, is maybe as, as you hear this, I know for me, this is something that is deeply and highly convicting because I feel like I need to do a much better job of, of bringing and giving joy to people rather than bringing them down. And, and it's easy for you to think, yeah, you're right, DL. You know, you should be doing a better job with that. But I want to really encourage you um, to please, please, please turn this inward to yourself. And rather than thinking of, oh, I, know, I could list 10 people. Actually, I'm going to look at 10 people in here who are good at bringing people down. Instead of doing that, really turn this inward to yourself and say, what about me? Do I bring joy to people? Do I give joy to people? Or do I steal their joy and leave them wishing that they hadn't had this conversation with me? Paul says there's two types of people, and the two people he's going to talk about are living examples of the teachings that he's given through the first two chapters, and he's writing it so that we might understand and see that, yeah, this is possible for us to live in this way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 uh, through 30, this is what we're going to look at today. 
and look at two of Paul's closest buddies, two joy givers in Paul's life uh, who brought much joy to him in the midst of uh, these downtimes. Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. This is God's word. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when, I, when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor, men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. This is God's word. Um, Paul's writing about two of his buddies, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, you may have heard of some of them. You've probably heard of Timothy more than you've heard of Epaphroditus uh, simply for the fact that there's so many more people named Timothy in our world today than there are people named Epaphroditus, right? So who is Timothy? Who is Epaphroditus? Timothy, his name means uh, one who honors God. Right? That was what his name meant. He was uh, born to parents, uh, a mother who was Jewish and a father who was Greek. And so he was brought up in the teachings of Scripture because of his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois. They raised him up in the teachings of Christ. Now, in the, I'm sorry, in the teachings of Old Testament Scripture. Now, Paul was on a mission trip to a city called Lystra, and he got, he got beat up, he got jumped, and, and all these things, and he got kicked out, uh, left to die, but God uh, spared his life, and he went back into the city, went back into the city of Lystra. There he met this young man named Timothy, and he led him to the Lord. And because of that, he calls him a son in the faith. So Timothy has this kind of father-son relationship with Timothy. And from this point on, from that point on, Timothy uh, was one of Paul's closest companions. In fact, in all of Paul's letters, he writes about, uh, writes about a hundred of about 100 different people, names 100 different people that he would consider his colleagues, his friends, but nobody shows up as frequently as Timothy, and nobody is as near and dear to the heart of Timothy, I'm sorry, to the heart of Paul as Timothy was. So Timothy was with Paul, as you read in the beginning of this letter, he was with him when the church in Philippi first began. And so the people of Philippi were close to the heart of Timothy as they were to the heart of Paul. So not only did he go with them to Philippi, but he also went with them to Thessalonica, to Corinth, to Ephesus, to, uh, to Berea, to Rome, to different places. And when Paul was in his last imprisonment, his last jail term awaiting his death, he wrote his second letter to Timothy and he pleaded with Timothy. And he said, Timothy, please come and visit me in jail. Come before the winter time so that I can have you as my companion through this final chapter of my life. Right, Timothy was a dear friend to Paul, and Paul needed him in his darkest moments. He needed him in his darkest hour. And in the same way that he needed him at the end of his life while he's in jail, while he's sitting in this jail cell here, Timothy is there with him to care for his needs. And a lot of the reason why Paul could say in the midst of this jail cell that I have joy is in some part due to the fact that Timothy was there 
to care for him, right? to do this thing together, to be with him in the midst of the hardships of life. That was Timothy. Now, when the Philippian church heard that Timothy was, uh, that Paul was in jail, they decided we're going to send somebody out to care for his needs. We're going to send a gift. We're going to send some money. We're going to send somebody to cheer him up. And so who do they decide on? They decide on Epaphroditus. His name means charming, right? Who better to send to a person in jail, to a person in distress, but this charming Epaphroditus. So they send him out. So Epaphroditus is on his way. Um, and on his way there, he gets really sick. And so uh, make a long story short, Epaphroditus ends up you know, going and, and getting sent back earlier to Philippi. And so while they're waiting, right, waiting, waiting, the Philippian church thinks that Epaphroditus is going to be out there for a while, but they see him coming back a lot sooner than they expected. And so the question is, what happened to Epaphroditus? Did he fail in his mission? Did Paul not like the gift that we gave to him? Did Paul have a falling out with Epaphroditus? Why is he sending him back so much sooner than we thought? And so Paul writes this section of Philippians in order to explain, no, 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 no. It's not that he failed. In fact, he did his mission well, and he went above and beyond the call of duty. And so he says, honor people like him. So we're going to look at these two guys briefly. We're going to look at their stories and what they tell us about the nature of people who give and bring joy to other people. The first guy we're going to look at is Timothy. Second guy is Paphroditus. The first thing we see through Timothy is that joy givers are genuinely interested in joy. And I don't mean to define the word by using the word in its definition, but joy givers are genuinely interested in joy. And when we talk about joy, it's an acronym you've probably heard many times before, but joy stands for Jesus, others, and you. This was Timothy's priority structure. His priority first and foremost was Jesus, and then it was others, and then lastly, it was himself. And in so doing, because that was the way that he put his, uh, ordered his life, he was able to bring joy to so many people. If you look at what it says, um, Verse 20, he says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what's going on here? Here's what's happening. Paul desperately wanted to visit the church in Philippi. Because remember, he started the church and then he had to leave it unceremoniously. He got kind of kicked out and on many occasions wanted to go back to visit the Philippian church. Because after about 10 or 15 years, they were going through persecution. He didn't know how they were doing. And so his deep desire was that he would go back and visit the Philippians, but he couldn't do it, especially now that he's sitting in jail. And so he asked, apparently he asked a bunch of his, a bunch of his colleagues, and he says, will you go to Philippi, some hundreds of miles away? Will you go to Philippi to see how the church is doing and bring back a report to me? Will you go? Will you go? And, and one by one, he asked these people, and every single one of them says, no, I, don't, I can't go. For whatever reason, it doesn't tell us why, it doesn't tell us uh, what their reason was. Probably many of them were legitimate, uh, mo- but all of them couldn't go. And so Paul's discouraged because he says that's what people are like. They looked out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, he says, but you know, Timothy, he's different. Uh, Timothy is not like that. He asked Timothy, will you go to the church in Philippi? Will you go to them? And Timothy says, I'll go. For the sake of Christ, I'll go. It doesn't matter to me. There are no strings attached. There's a genuine interest that Timothy takes in the affairs of Jesus Christ. And he says, because of that, he says, there's no one else like him. And so Paul's heart is overjoyed because of that, because he sees someone who is completely surrendered to the cause of Christ. And he said, because of that, I take joy. There's no one else like him. There's no one else like him. And so he says, he is a kindred spirit with me. And as I send Timothy to you, In essence, what he's saying is when you get Timothy, you're getting me because he is 
similar uh, in heart and similar in desire, just like me. He said, and he goes on, he said, not only is he genuinely interested in the things of Christ, but he's genuinely interested in your welfare as well. It's this word genuine, the picture that you get of this word genuine is, it, it's pretty simple. You're going to be like, well, that's nothing alarming. But the word picture that we see it, it, about this word, uh, when we talk about genuine, something being genuine, is a child born to a married couple. <laughs> pretty simple. Basically, it's a legitimate child. Not an illegitimate child, not a sketchy kind of child, but a child that was born in a legitimate manner. And what Paul is saying about Timothy is that his interest in your welfare is legitimate. It's genuine. There are no strings attached. He's not like, oh, I'm taking an interest in them so that they'll like me more, or I'm going to go to them so that they might praise me or I'm going to them so that I might get something out of it, or I'm going to them because it makes me feel better about myself, or I'm going to them because I've got nothing better to do for a few months. He's going because he's genuinely, legitimately interested in the well-being and the welfare of the Philippian church. And so Paul says, because that's his desire, that kind of a desire brings joy to my heart. He's a joy giver. He's one who lifts my spirits up, and he will do the same for you. And so he sends Timothy out there. His priority structure was Jesus first, and then it was others, and lastly, it was himself. See, a a lot of times we think, if I put myself first, I've got to look out for my own interests. I've got to look out for my own joy. That's how I find find joy. Paul is saying, no, it's the other way around. How many people do we know who are self-centered, who are living completely devoid of joy? And how many people do we know who bring joy to other people who are selfishly self-centered? Probably not many people. Paul's saying this is how we need to live in order to bring joy. And here's the thing. He says, here's the thing. As we give joy to other people, as the word of God in Proverbs says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. He says, as you seek to give joy to other people, that joy will be returned to you. As we take a genuine interest in the welfare of others. Um, There's a guy, there's a... um, Story told of a little bit outside of Chicago, a woman was driving her car. Um, just uh, car had a flat tire, was pulled over the side of the road. This is an old Mercedes-Benz, an elderly lady driving this car. So she's pulled over the side of the road. Uh, nightfall was coming. It was a rainy day. Uh, she was pulled over. Hazards were on, but over an hour came and went, and now the car stopped by. So this, finally, this one car stopped by, and again, it was getting darker, and so uh, his beat-up Pontiac sputtered as it pulled over and got to where she was. She was, uh, needless to say, quite frightened. Uh, she, she's telling the story. She says, this guy was a little bit scary looking. I didn't feel completely safe around him. And so he saw and he recognized her situation. He recognized that she was uh, fearful. And so he tried to put her heart at ease, tried to put her mind at ease. And he said, don't worry, everything's going to be all right. Uh, I said, my name is Brian, and I, I, I just, uh, I'm here to help you. So he, he said to her, why don't you sit in my car where it's warm, and, and I'll, uh, I'll fix your car, and then I'll come back and, and, and get you. So she sat in his car, and she was just kind of watching and, and seeing what was going to happen. And it took about 10 minutes. He fixed her flat tire, and then he went back into the car, and he said, everything is good to go. And she said, how much do I, uh, how much do I need to pay you? And uh, for, for Brian, he never saw, thought twice about money. He said, this is not a, it's not a job for me. Uh, I saw someone who was in need on the side of the road, and I felt like uh, it was the only right thing to do was to help. Right? When you see somebody in need, uh, taking this genuine interest in, in, in their well-being. And so he said, no, don't think, don't think uh, 
I will be accepting any money from you. But if you really feel in, indebted, then here's what you could do is you could take this and, and the next place you go, next person you see, you can uh, offer uh, kindness to them. When you do that, you can, you can think of me. That would be uh, the best way to pay me back. And so she said, okay. And she went into her car. She um, was on her way to St. Louis. It was the last, uh, last uh, stretch. And so uh, she said, okay, that's fine. And, and he waited for her to drive off before he took off. And he thought to himself, you know, this has been a long and really difficult day, long and difficult day. But to be able to, to show care to somebody, to show genuine care and, and to think about their well-being and think about uh, their welfare in a time like this has brought joy to an otherwise joyless day. And he drove off and um, kind of illustrating the point that, yeah, when we do things for other people, there's joy that comes from it. This would be a really stupid story if it ended there, but it doesn't. So this lady kept on driving and she uh, said, well, I need to eat something as I drive these last couple hours home to St. Louis. So she stopped in this little dinky diner um, that I, I need to get some food. And uh, she was wet from the rain and as she sat down, the server came to her, and the server uh, saw her, and she saw her shivering a little bit, so she went ba- out back and, and got a towel and brought it to her and allowed her to dry her hair. This elderly lady was uh, thinking, uh, looking at this server, and she realized she's about eight months pregnant. It looked like she's right about ready to pop, and she said, even though she's got that thing inside of her stomach, she's so full of, of, of kindness and joy and willing to look out after my needs, and, and so... After she ate the meal, she asked for the bill and got the bill and put a $100 bill in there, and she gave it to the server, and then she just kind of slipped out um, the restaurant. The server came back with it uh, only to see that the lady had gone. And she saw in this envelope there was uh, a note. This note had $400 in it, and it said, um, you don't need to pay me back. I know that times might be tough, and I've been there before. And she uh, as she drove off, she was thinking of Brian. And so this lady, kind of in shock at what happened, the server was in shock at what had happened. She kind of looked at this money, looked at this note, and, and she uh, put it in her pocket. Her shift ended, and she drove home that day. I drove home that night, and as she was thinking, she's like, how in the world did that lady know? How in the world did that lady know that in just a couple weeks I'd be given birth and that finances were really tight around the home? How, how in the world could she have known that this was a situation in, in my life and that my husband has been struggling and, and wrestling and, and, and stressing out over it and, and wondering and praying, asking God, how are we going to make ends meet? How in the world did she know about that? As she uh, changed into her uh, pajamas, she went into bed that night and she looked at her husband and looked at him and, and just all stressed out about all the things that uh, were about to happen and the changes in their lives and the financial difficulties and she looked at him and she said, everything's going to be okay because someone provided for us. Someone gave to us. And she kissed him goodnight. She said, everything's going to be okay, Brian. And they went to sleep together that night. It's an interesting thing that happens when we take a genuine interest in the welfare of other people. And so many times we give joy to others and God has a way of returning that joy to us as well. Not because we seek that joy for ourselves, not because we put ourselves first, but because we put the welfare of others and the interest of others before ourselves. And how about us? Timothy was like that, willing to put others before himself and bringing joy to so many people. That's the first thing that we see. Joy givers, genuinely interested in joy. The second thing that we see in the life of Epaphroditus is that joy givers inconvenience themselves 
to bring joy to others. Okay? Joy givers inconvenience themselves to bring joy to other people. This is what Epaphroditus did. So he was sent out by the Philippian church to care for the needs of Paul. But what we don't see here is what we don't understand is that when someone was awaiting capital punishment, and Paul awaiting the death sentence, for someone to align themselves with them and to help them in their time of need as they await a trial was to subject themselves to the same sentence. So in Epaphroditus going and bringing this gift and caring for Paul, he was literally what it says, where is it? It says, uh, uh, in verse 30, it says, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give to me. The word that literally it means is he gambled. He gambled his life for the sake of Paul. It's just a roll of the die. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to cast my lot with Paul, and if I perish, it isn't this what Esther said, if I perish, then I perish. This is what he's doing. He's completely going all in in order to bring joy to Paul, saying, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I know that it might cost me my life, but I'll do this. I will inconvenience myself so that I might bring joy to Paul, to bring joy to other people. And as he's doing that, as he's going on his way to visit Paul, apparently he gets really sick. We don't know what kind of sickness it was. We don't know uh, what the nature of it was, but it was so bad that he almost died. And here's what Paul says in verse 27. It says, indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. He's saying he he, he was sickened to the point of death, but God spared him. But not only did he save his life, but if Epaphroditus had died also, if he had died, then it would have completely crushed me. It would have completely ruined me. Why is it that Paul, he had already gotten his gift from Epaphroditus. He'd already gotten the money that he needed. Why is it that he could look at Epaphroditus and say, if you had died, then it would have been the end of me? We see in this threefold description in verse 25 that Paul gives of Epaphroditus of what Epaphroditus meant to Paul. It says in in verse 25, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to care for my needs, uh, to take care of my needs. Uh, An author named Stu Weber, he talks about this and he says, it's almost like as Paul is introducing Epaphroditus, it's... It's akin to an announcer announcing uh, some kind of a politician or a, a boxer at a boxing match, and, and he's just building up this crescendo of, of, of accolades upon him. Here's the former uh, member of the 13th District, the former senator of Illinois, the president of the United States of America, and he introduces uh, Barack Obama that way. He's saying, this is who he is. It's necessary to send back to you my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, here is Epaphroditus. And what in the world did this mean? And what did Paul mean when he called Epaphroditus these things? The, the first thing, we, we start at the bottom. He talks about him being a brother. He says, Epaphroditus is not just some dude who came and, and brought me a care package, but he's my brother. I don't know if, you, um, I don't know if any of you guys know this song. Uh, Neil Diamond, amongst other people, wrote it. It was popular, I think, in, maybe in the 60s. It says, he, it, it's called, He Ain't Heavy, He's my brother. Anybody heard this song before? Yeah, okay, there we go. Couple, couple people. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. The, the title of the song comes from um, the early 1900s. There was an orphanage. Um, I forget what exactly the orphanage was called. 
um, a cardinal, a Catholic cardinal started it, um, Father Flanagan or something, that, something like that, started this orphanage, Boys Town, USA, that's what it was called. And the motto of this, the motto of this uh, orphanage was, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. And the way that they, they showed this, um, they, they showed it in a poster, it was a painting, I think, a painting or a sculpture. And apparently you can read between the lines, but what was happening was there was this boy and he was carrying his brother on his back, piggybacking his brother. And he was running away, somewhere in the Midwest, he's running away from a storm. There's a storm coming, and he comes upon this farmhouse, and he's knocked on the door, and this, this kind of motherly lady opens the door, and she's looking almost quizzically at these children and wondering, you know, how can you be carrying him for such a long distance? There's nothing anywhere near here. And his response is, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. These two orphans, these urchins, street kids, they knock on the farmhouse for shelter, and the response of this, probably this older brother, is, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. What in the world does that mean? Probably, you know, the, the way that you could imagine this conversation playing out is, these kids, they've got no place to live, that's why it's an ad for an orphan, he's got no place to live, and so they're trying to escape um, this thunderstorm as the dark clouds are coming, and his little brother, his younger brother, whoever it might be, maybe he's, he's, he's pudgy or something like that, but he, 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 he says, I can't go any further. I can't do it anymore. Let's just stop, and, and let's, just, let's just stop here. And his brother says, that's unthinkable. That's unthinkable. I'm not going to leave you behind here. I'm not going to leave you behind. And so he, with all of the intestinal fortitude, puts him on his back, and he says, we're going to go as far as we can, and we're going to find shelter, because doggone it, that's what brothers do. That's what brothers do. Because when it comes to brotherhood, logic goes out the window. When it comes to family, rationality goes out the window. It's like the, the, the mom who has superhuman strength to lift up the car that's smushing her baby, right? This superhuman strength is like, these things don't matter. One person defined family as a group of people who give an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. An irrational commitment. And Paul is saying, this is what Epaphroditus was for me. It didn't make sense for him to do what he did. It didn't make sense to him to show this kind of a commitment to my well-being, but he did. But he did. Epaphroditus was the kind of person, when he thought about the Apostle Paul, when he thought about the hundreds of miles that he, he would need to go, when he thought about the illness that afflicted him, he said, I'm going to keep on going. It's not that heavy because he's my brother. It ain't that heavy. And Paul says, that's why if he were to die, it would have crushed me. Because he's my brother. He says, he's my fellow worker. I'm going to skip over that. He's my fellow, he's a fellow soldier. He's a fellow soldier. I, I don't know how much this resonates with the, with the sisters in our congregation, but I think any guy who reads this gets this sense of, 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 of immediate solidarity. We love war movies, right? People who fight, they, they fight in the trenches. I think John Eldridge was, or somebody said that every guy needs a, a battle to fight. They want the beauty to die for. And yeah, we want someone to die for, but a lot of men deep in our heart, we want not only someone to die for, but we want someone to die with. Someone to go into the battles of life and to, to fight the good fight at the end of it all, to have somebody next to us as we die and to say, you know, what, we did this together. We did this together. And I would have died a long time earlier <clears throat> if it hadn't been for you. Paul says Epaphroditus, not only a brother, not only a worker, but he's a fellow soldier. We're in the trenches. We're fighting in the, in the down and dirty together. We're there. This is who he was. He says, if he were to die, then it would have been the death of my heart as well. 
remember the, the movie Black Hawk Down? It was based on a true story, 1993, this operation to, uh, to take out these rebel troops in Somalia, and Mogadishu. And so they go in deep in the heart of the city. It's supposed to be a simple operation. Simple mission should have been 30 minutes in and out. But something happened along the way. These U.S. Army Rangers uh, in their helicopters, in their Black Hawks, one of them gets shot down. And so immediately, they've got no backup plan. Remember, this is just an in-and-out operation, but it gets shot down. And all of a sudden, they don't know what to do. They've got no contingency plan. They didn't imagine that this would ever happen. Along the way, all these people die. Uh, 19 of them died. 75 of them were injured. But the reason they made a movie out, and the reason why this story is so powerful is because of the commitment these men had to one another. There was no, in, in the army, there's no code of ethics that said you need to, to take off. But they say amongst army rangers, there's an unwritten code. There's an unwritten code that binds these men together. After they had cleared out all the rescue, all of the wounded soldiers and, and gotten them to safety, here's what these men did. A hundred strong, they surrounded a perimeter around the one Black Hawk that was wounded. And the pilot who was dead already in that, in that copter, they surrounded him and they fought off the enemies until they could get him out of there. This is, again, this is, this is something that doesn't make sense if you're not in the throes of, 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 a, of a war, in the throes of army. But it's like these guys were saying, according to our creed, according to our code of ethics, we never leave one of our people in enemy territory. No matter they're wounded, they're dead, we never leave them back. We never leave them behind. And we do everything that we can to get them to safety. We think to ourselves, if I were in that situation, what would I want my fellow soldiers to do? Would I want them to leave me? to save their own lives or would I want them there for me? And they think about that and they say, that's how I'm going to react. That's how I'm going to respond. And so these men surrounded these copters and at risk to their own lives, at risk to their own lives, they stayed there and they fought. And many people, many people wrote of this mission. They said it was a waste. They said it was a failure. They shouldn't have done it. They shouldn't have gone there. They should have saved their own lives. They should have left. But I think if the apostle Paul was looking back looking forward into that kind of a situation. It is an individualistic culture that says we need to save ourselves. We need to look out for ourselves. And Paul is saying, look, everything we do, we do together. He says that's why he's a fellow soldier, because he risked his life. He put his neck on the line. He inconvenienced himself so that I might have joy, so that I might have life, so that I might be rescued, that I might have what he easily could have had had he not come out to where I was. Think that's who he is. That's who he was for me. And he, he begins to talk about these things, and he says, this is what it means to give joy to people. You will do one of two things, people of God. You will either give joy to other people, or you'll rob joy from them. Which do you do? When people leave lunch meetings with you, when people get off the phone with you, when people uh, uh, leave conversations after having talked with you, do they feel like I am a better person? There's an increased level of joy in me, or do they feel like I just talked to Debbie Downer? And what is the effect of your life on other people? Here's a sad fact. In the Israelites, we talked about them last week, all of them brought other people down because of their complaining and their grumbling. And Paul is saying, you, when you do this, you shine like stars in the universe because you're not like that. You're a joy giver. And I'm saying, and I'm teaching these things, and he says, it's not just abstract things. Let me show you two people who are living it out. Timothy and Epaphroditus show you that it is possible. <clears throat> and Paul says, I wish that their lives would not just be these sterling exemplars of what it is to live this way, but that this would be the norm in the church. What if this kind of, 
of a other-centered, Jesus-centered, inconveniencing of ourselves for the joy of other people, that kind of attitude became the norm here at our church. Instead of the things that come out of our mouths being a cut down, and then I was just playing around. Or, hey, you know what? Um, you really blew it. Haha, <laughs> I was just kidding. Instead of that kind of talk, what if our talk became seasoned with salt and life and joy? What if as parents, we stopped talking negatively to our children and saying, ah, I was just playing around? Or don't you know I was just being loving? That's my way of showing love to you when your child is dying inside. What if as children, we began to talk differently to our parents? And instead of saying, why can't you handle it? You're mature, you're older. Instead of blaming them for it and say, why are you so sensitive? Turning the mirror inward, saying, what if we began to act the way Christ would have us act? What kind of a community would that build in us? Paul's saying this, we have every right to expect this from one another if we've received the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Freely we've received. Now freely we give. He says, because I'm not just talking about myself being example. I'm not just talking about Timothy. I'm not just talking about Epaphroditus. I'm talking about Jesus. And some of us feel like we need to wait for someone to give joy to us before we can give joy to other people. He's saying, no, look, it's been given to you already. You are already in a life-giving relationship with a joy giver. You see, Jesus Christ is the one who flipped this upside down. He didn't put Jesus first. He put you first. He put others before himself. He gladly inconvenienced himself so that joy might be brought to you and to me. And if we're in an intimate relationship with him, then daily we should be receiving this kind of joy. Daily we should be receiving this kind of life. And as we receive this for ourselves, then we can rise up with joy within us and go and extend that to other people. You see, because we didn't live this way, that's why Jesus came and he died on the cross and he took the punishment that you and I deserved for our joy stealing. And on the cross he hung and he received the punishment for our lack of joy giving. And at the cross he received the punishment so that in rising again, he might be able to infuse our lives with a new kind of joy. And he says, if you've received this, only those who've received this, only those who understand the gospel can freely do this without expecting anything else in return. He says, you have received this church in Philippi. You've received this church. Receive it. And as you receive it, be filled so that you might give joy to other people as well. As we uh, come to the Lord, as we respond, as we turn the word of God into our hearts, let's examine ourselves. In my relationships with my friends, with my siblings, with my parents, with my children, with my coworkers, with my friends at school, which of these has marked my life? a stealing of other people's joy or a giving of joy to other people? Are we receiving, walking in intimacy with Christ, receiving the joy that he has to give to us so that in being full, we might be able to give to other people? Let's take a minute right now just to respond to God's word, maybe in confession. As we repent, this is where transformation comes. We surrender our sinful ways and we embrace the ways of Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the link between where we are and where we need to be. It's that vital bridge of repentance. Maybe that's what God's calling us to do. Maybe for others of us, as Paul says, honor men like Epaphroditus. Maybe for others of us, 
The simple thing is, prayer for us is to give gratitude to God for people who've brought joy into our lives. Let's take a minute right now just to pray and respond to the word of God, asking that he would help us to become joy givers to others. That is a community of joy givers. Imagine what would happen if everyone began to go underneath others and lift them up. What would happen if everyone else, instead of trying to enter into relationships to receive from others, came to give? What a beautiful place that would be and what a way for, what a witness for others to see. Let's uh, take a moment to pray to the Lord to respond to his invitation, gracious invitation through his word to enter into a life of joy and joy giving. Let's pray for a minute and we'll continue in our worship service. Father in heaven, we know that life would be a whole lot more dreary if it weren't for people who would come in and out of our lives to bring joy to us. This world would be a lot darker place if it were not for people like Timothy and Epaphroditus who freely gave themselves to bring joy to other people. This world would still be a dark place had it not been for Jesus Christ who entered into the darkness by inconveniencing himself so that others might be comforted, that others might have joy. Father, we pray that you would help us to see and to imagine and to envision the value that we could add to other people when through the power of the gospel we freely give and minister joy to others. We pray that each of us in here today would be transformed in the very core of our being as we continue to worship so that we might in turn be those who bring joy and life to other people for the glory of God and for the blessing of many. We thank you, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name.